Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS. I am here, not with professional vacationer Thea Lenarduzzi, who trolled me on Twitter this week with a poster from Naples, which read, Say no to pineapple on pizza, in English, suspiciously. So anyway, she said it was from Naples, uh, but she's not here. Uh, but token northerner, former indie pop star Lucy Dallas is alongside me. Lucy, hello. Hello. Hawaiian pizzas? I I can claim no high ground. I used to love a Hawaiian pizza. I haven't had one for ages, but I used to I, still I used them. to eat them with relish and gusto. Yeah, I sometimes, eat, I still eat them regularly. My daughter likes them, so I'm... There you go. It's fruit. It's one of your five, is it? Yeah, I mean, probably not. No. It's probably particularly sugary fruit, isn't it? Yeah. Also, as I said on Twitter, what do Italians really know about pizza? I really hope you didn't I say, did say that. I did say that. Did you? Yeah. Okay. I, I quote tweeted Thea and said that. Well done. Well done, me. Anyway, if you're not already, get subscribing to the TLS. Here is a code to enable you to do so. If you live in the USA or Canada, go to podcast.the-tls.com. That's podcast.the-tls.com. And if you live anywhere else, including the UK, then go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod 19. And you'll get five issues for just five pounds or five dollars. And remember last week we talked about how our listeners did seem to range across the world. And I asked you to tweet your locations. Well, guess what, Lucy Dallas? What, Stigable? This is not just thrown together. Someone tweeted from Hawaii. Brilliant. The home of the Hawaiian pizza. Well, it, it probably isn't, it is prob- it? It almost certainly isn't. Uh, but we have a listener on the volcanic slopes of Kilauea, I want to say. How wonderful. Yeah, and other people. Jeffrey listens while he's crossing the US border, driving to youth centres in Ciudad Juarez in Mexico. That's very um, Dylan-esque. Yeah, and laudable. And, and, and extremely and, and, and laudable. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. Ca- Carrie listens from Ethiopia. Brilliant. And we've got a man and his wife in New York who tweeted to say their cat doesn't like Thea's dog. But, but, I mean, how does he know? Well, they understand everything, don't they? Okay. They don't really, I don't know. Uh, And finally, um, the magnificently named Walker Beecham, not on Twitter, so he emailed me to say he listens in his kitchen in Birmingham, Alabama. Y'all do nice work, he says. 
and he's called Walker Beecham, which I think is couldn't be more of a Southern American. It's a wonderful name. name. So yeah. hello to him. Uh, do keep him coming in your exotic or mundane locations when listening to us. Tweet at the TLS, or do find any other way of getting in touch. We'll read it out. This week we've got a Russian special in the paper, including an exclusive new ending to Camera Obscura, written by Vladimir Nabokov. Rachel Polonsky is writing about the life and novels of Vasily Grossman, and the question posed by Amy Knight is about the modern Russian state. Is it more sinned against than sinning? Our redoubtable Russian editor, Rebecca Reich, will talk us through it. Plus, Laura Freeman is in the studio to talk about one of Lucy's favourite subjects. It's one of my subjects at the moment. The I don't girls. know about it. Enough. I mean, I'm not saying I don't like yeah, it. I no, very I'm much do like talk. it. We're doing it because you like it no, so much. That's why we picked it. I know, but yes, yes it is. I'm yeah. just going to say yes. And one of Thea's favourite subjects, food. Would the Durrells have liked pineapple on pizza, Lucy? I'd, I'd say not. They were people of taste and discernment, oh. mostly. Mind you, we are going to hear about pond life sandwiches. So they've probably got a broad taste, which might include fruit and pizza. It might. I guess we'll never know for sure. Keen listeners to the podcast will remember that a couple of weeks ago, Catherine Morris of this parish told us a lovely story about her sister meeting Dr Stephanides from Gerald Dorrell's much-loved trilogy about his family life on Corfu. Keen TV watchers will know the series inspired by the book that's been running for years now on the BBC, Delightful, Relaxing Sunday Night Telly. Um, Who wants which, that? Which Stick doesn't like? No, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't dislike the show. I've never seen this the show. This is my introduction, no, yeah. by the way. Okay, you're fine. Welcome, yeah. Stick. Hello. No, I mean, do we like relaxing Sunday afternoon TV? Yes. Evening TV? Yeah. Not, not all of it, oh, right. but but when it's good, we do like it, don't we, Laura? I'm okay. going to introduce Laura in a minute, but okay, I've yeah. been hijacked. Fine, carry on, carry on. <laughs> So now there is a book of stories and recipes from the Durrell matriarch, Louisa, which has been written by David Shimwell, and Laura Freeman wrote about it for the TLS and is here in the studio to discuss it with us. Yeah. Hello, Laura. As we Hello. know. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. You, so we've established that you do like Sunday Night Telly. Oh, yes, I'd much rather watch the Durrells than Killing Eve. But, um... yeah. well, that's interesting. Have you seen the second series of Killing Eve? Anyone? No, I do think it makes a difference when it's on in the week. As well. This is an entirely different <laughs> we'll podcast, get, we'll which we could yeah. get to later. I thought Killing Eve was, uh, even the first series, was slightly overrated. I thought it was all right, but everyone sort of falls over and pretends it's the greatest thing ever read, and that didn't strike me as that. I only saw about seven minutes of it. Laura? I gave up after two episodes. Did you? And I thought if it was two men, we would denounce it as horrible and violent yeah. and vicious. I yeah. think <laughs> it's the thing about... You know that, also that thing about assassins? They're, they're not real, are they? I mean... Well, you know, loads of people have been obsessed with assassins. There's lots of things that aren't real. I hate, I hate to break this to you. <laughs> I know it's fictional, but this sort of obsession with kind of people that go around... Should we be talking about the yeah. thing we're supposed to be talking about? <laughs> yeah, we, right. do, we do need to be on to that, but I would say this, that it's basic genre fiction, which I read a lot of, and just because it's written, it was originally written by a man anyway, just because it's been adapted by a woman and it features women, it still is just basic yeah. genre fiction. To roll over and pretend any otherwise seems to me to be wrong. But there you go. Anyway, look. We're not talking about that. Let's talk about the Durrells. So I want to ask Laura, can you tell us what sort of book Dining with the Durrells is? 
Uh, it's a little bit of a hodgepodge. Um, it's Love that word. a mix of Louisa Durrell's recipes, some of which are actually her grandmother's. Um, she was born in India. Uh, and so they're actually mostly Indian recipes. So off they go to Kofu and they're eating onion bhajis and they're eating Taj Mahal titbits and Madras marbles. And then it's uh, little extracts from the Gerald Durrell books, My Family and Other Animals, Birds, Beasts and Relatives and In the Garden of the Gods. And then some uh, vignettes from Larry Durrell's uh, books also about Kofu. Right, because we, we were just talking about Larry Donald's books and whether we had Larry, read... Is he Larry? Oh, he's, Sorry, he's Larry. Lawrence. Is he Larry in the books? Is he Larry? Yeah, it's very funny because in the in the Gerald Doral books, he's Larry and he's kind of irascible and funny and annoying. And and actually, I watched... Uh, I, can't, I don't know how many. I watched three of the TV series before going, oh, that's Lawrence Durrell. Who wrote the Alexandria Quartet. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I wasn't famously difficult, of him like It that. is a famously difficult quartet to finish. It is. Because it's, yep. it's almost, he's writing the tradition sort of Henry Millery, he was experimental, and um, there's bits yep. of sort of strange, sort of se- creepy sex. There's and quite, of, yeah, there's quite a lot of sex. And the sort of the, the demi-monde he's really writing yes, about. Yeah. And they both write about. So if you... If you re- I read Gerald Gerald Durrell. You read him as a child, don't you? Yeah. yeah. And then if you say, oh, I'll read Lauren. I'll read Larry. I've seen him on <laughs> Larry the- and Jerry. Yeah, Larry and Jerry. And then you'd be like, oh, that's a slightly Ooh. different yeah, uh, don't, book. Don't entirely. give that one to your children. Um, do you? Is the book? Is it a valuable addition to um, what we've called Dorelliana? Do you think, or is it a spin-off I think Laura from a called spin-off? It Dorelliana. Oh, did you? Oh, no, Dorelliana. you called it Dorelliana. Sorry. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I think it's not not wholly successful. I think it could have been a more beautiful book because I think if you'd had gorgeous photos of Corfu and the various villas they stayed in, I think it would be a lovely kind of leafing through on a Sunday night to fill the void that has been left by the ending of the Durrell sort of book. Um, but it's slightly meanly um, produced. But but the extracts remain extremely lovely and evocative. Um, and I think if you're fond of them, then it's very nice to spend a couple of hours in, in their company. Mm. Who is fond of I mean, what audience is this aiming at? Is, is it the TV show audience squarely? I mean, reading it, do you think, oh, this is this is a, I don't want to say cash in. This is a this is a tribute. Yeah, spin off, a tribute to, tribute a homage a to. Yeah. Uh, is that what it, does it feel like? That. Yeah, it, it does. I think it's it's written with great uh, affection, um, and and actually, the David Shimwell is a botanist, and he is quite interesting about um, some of the natural herbs and and foraging that 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 you can do on Corfu. And I love the idea that instead of just having a bog standard spanakopita with spinach, you can have one which is called a hortopitacia, um, which has fennel, chicory, dandelion, and spring onions. And I made one, but with nettles, and and it actually came off pretty well. Did you? Yeah. Did you? Yeah. Nettle. Wow. Quite like good. it. Yeah. You're supposed to be able to make, you can make soup, can't you? Yeah. you use and nettle tea. I've had nettle yeah. tea before. But, but young ones, you want, I mean, I think it's getting a bit late in the season now to do it. Is there a nettle mm. season? There is a nettle season. Well, because they get big and tough and, and, and stringy. And, yeah. But um, by pouring boiling water on you, remove the sting, don't you? Exactly. There we go. People, people say they don't learn anything on this podcast. <laughs> and this I hope they don't. No, I hope they don't. <laughs> They're learning a different sort of thing this time. Yeah. Um, and I was, I was surprised because. Um, well, you say that a lot of the recipes are, are Indian, as you say, a lot of curries, because she she grew up there. But um, I remember um, in the book, there's lots of completely luscious descriptions of her making very English things like scones and biscuits that you wouldn't have thought that she would be, that you wouldn't have thought the climate or the ingredients would be suited to them. Are, is there any of that or not? Yeah, there is. I mean, there are things like uh, very classic seed cakes. Um, but what's so nice is, is I think the mix of culture. So you do get... Indian dishes and you get endless curries uh, and then you get sort of English biscuity type things and then you get you know classic Greek 
dishes. And I was thinking, my, my partner came back from cricket on Sunday saying, I've just had the best cricket tea of my life. And it was the Indian wife of one of the players who had made a kind of amazing sort of mix mm. of, of custard creams and spiced lamb patties and samosas and egg and cress sandwiches. And it went down a treat. That's something that nice. But that's well, cricket as well as we're in this, we're, we're in the realm of nostalgia here, aren't we? With this series and presumably this book, this is kind of the, the sunlight falling on the village green and um, hodgepodge of cultures coming together better not think too critically about it but actually on the face of it quite nicely but actually they were very open the Dorrells as a family seemed to have been very open to other cultures there was no problem they weren't English they didn't like that kind of narrow Englishness did they they didn't like that definition I thought what I found really fascinating is Louisa is not English she was born in India and I think even her grandmother had been born in India India had been home for three generations so when when they talk of home and when her husband dies and she goes back to first Dulwich and then Bournemouth England is not a country she knows it's completely Mm. unfamiliar so when they take this supposed great leap into the unknown going to Corfu it's actually not so very strange because going back to England I think was the real culture shock Mm, and uh, which they didn't like and everyone was kind of depressed and Damp and well, you have a day like yesterday, and you know, can you? <laughs> what blame sort of them? time is this? Is this the the thirties, the fifties, twenties, twenties? Yeah, I've just read Mary Renault. Uh, the King mm. Must Die and she won a prize in 1947 for one of her books which was 150 grand she won an MGM prize and she just uh, she just looked around at, this, at the British winter and sort of the post-war winter and I imagine the 20s and 30s winters the same thing this country that's that's cold and damp and the food is bland and boring and watery and mm. Pudding Island have, there yeah. must have been this urge to just find sunshine and sunlight and excitement somewhere else I think one of the things that really really strikes you about the book is, is I think the ripeness of everything so Jerry is always describing sun warmed grapes and figs that are splitting at the seams and, and melons that are kind of you know, collapsing in your hands because they're so lush and you're, you're kind of stained with juice and I think all of that is very very heady and, and very appealing mm. um, do we think Louisa is the, one of the great mums you were saying that I just, I've got a, a half-baked theory Go about on. well, but just about especially in children's literature I was about great kind of mother figures, and I think she's one of them that she's full of love and she's very tolerant and 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 a great provider. And I was trying to think I could think think of two or three more, but not that many. Maybe because if you have a wonderful mother figure like that. You, you don't want to go and do risk and drama and, yeah. you know, adventures. So who are the good mum? The woman in the Darling Buds of May? Ma Larkin. Ma Larkin. Yes, that, actually she'd be one. That's a classic mum, bounteous mum yeah. figure. Uh, Moomin Mama. I'm sorry, we are oh, talking We are talking about children's I, I think she's Mrs classic. Weasley in Harry Potter is... Yes, actually, yes. Absolutely she's a on. She's a classic one, isn't she? Right. I thought maybe Marmy from Little Women. Oh, yeah. She's a bit more distant, but yeah. still that kind of that kind of figure. I interviewed a, a children's author once and she said that you effectively need orphaned children or to create a, an artificial orphan setup so the parents yeah. are either dead or they're removed or they've been sent the kids have been sent away because if you have the parents loving parents there effectively every adventure hits a full stop yeah. pretty quickly so they go home exactly. and everything's all right. I think that's why we couldn't think of too many because Well the mother in Swallows and Amazons is rather brilliant because she she sort of makes the decision yes you can go off to this island I will provide you with a fabulous you know hamper and and don't drown. Um, and yeah. I think that's, that's sort of ideal mother isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Good luck. Yeah. Bye uh, bye darling. I want to ask you a question because you you know better than most. Of I was trying to think if you could at- if you could attend one meal. You've virtually written a whole book about, it, <laughs> uh, which I'm conscious of. So tricky. Uh, it doesn't have to be any one, but what immediately occurs? I just thought it's now, so I've not got anything planned myself. And Lucy, you can think about it. A meal in literature 
which has got the the juices flowing when you think about it that you'd like to that you'd like to attend I've always really liked in the Box of Delights when um, when our hero is ill and he's in bed and he's bought a hot posset. The egg posset. Do you not want to be tucked up in Do you bed and this? brought no, a I hot don't. posset? This is in the TV version as yeah. well. I can remember the guy. It's an egg. They take a, What do they do? It's is an it egg, egg and it's a tiny bit of whiskey. I think it's a bit of milk and it's all warm together oh, and, and it's served so in a nice. big pudding basin. And do you not just feel cosseted mm, already? Yeah, I don't that think you get lovely. possets anymore. Do you? I bet <laughs> that feels very Victorian. It's very Victoriana, isn't it? Uh, I was thinking. The, the, the meals they have in Fiesta, or the sun also rises, the booze is out, outlandish. It's industrial uh, in quantities. But, the, but the, the food that they have, they have at one point they have a, a trout stew and fresh strawberries, which is very nice. And then they have, they have one meal in Spain, and there's a reference, the narrator says, and because it was in Spain, there were a few extra courses, so we had to drink five bottles of wine to wash it down. And I love the had to. We had to. And you get five bottles of wine. <laughs> One of the great things I'm fascinated by, which I still haven't had an answer to, I'm trying to get someone to write this. Maybe you might know this, Laura. In the history of humanity, you've heard me, heard me say this before, everyone will have been drunk the whole time. Because if you go basically from the Victorian period and before that, water wasn't safe. So you got up in the morning, you drank beer, or if you were rich, you drank claret or you drank port. In in the Elizabethan times, you were again drinking beer. There was a famous uh, Italian courtier wrote to someone, said, if you come to England, you cannot drink the water. Do not drink the water. You have to drink wine or beer. Which then made me think, well, hang on a second. Does that mean that throughout all of civilised human history, people were drinking, you know, five bottles of wine a day? Why were they not just drunk? Well, you do hear people talk of small beer and mm. weak beer, yeah. and I don't think it's beer as we but know it. But it's still it. got alcohol it's in it. Still, it's still, it might be like ginger beer, like just got a little bit of alcohol. I think, though, it's still like if you drank only 2% beer all day, and that was the only thing, we you, could wouldn't, try it. you wouldn't be sober. I'm just fascinated <laughs> by the fact that almost everything that will have happened in history will have been undertaken by drunk people. Why hasn't everyone ever explored but this But maybe before? that's why we're doing so very well now, because our water is drinkable and we're, doing, we're, we're governing everything perfectly. Lucy, I, I see the point you're making. <laughs> I want someone to write. That would be interesting to know. Were, were people drunk throughout history? Because they couldn't drink water. As a teetotaler, I am not the person to write this. <laughs> <laughs> you're good on you're good on food. Um, what what other food is in this book before we, before well, we go? Can tell, I, tell, can us, I, tell, can tell us some highlights. Can I read you Jerry's breakfast? Because I think yes. if you're yes, tired yes, of your cornflakes, yeah. um, he talks of the toast and honeycomb um, and spreading out the musky brown gold delicacy on your bread, which was like spreading out liquid amber in which you might find almost anything from tiny moths and caterpillars to beetles and small centipedes. Once, to my delight. I found a species of earwig that was unknown to me. What a life! That would that would that's very him though, isn't it? To be delighted by the earwig in his honey, rather than going. Ugh. And he's very enterprising because he makes a sort of contract with the man who makes the best ice cream in Corfu, and he says, "I went three times a week, um, and I collected all the cockroaches from his kitchen, and in return, I could eat as much ice cream as I could I could manage." That's a deal, isn't it? Well, and the cockroaches <laughs> were to feed his pets, weren't yeah, they? Yeah. So, so it was good. It was a very good deal for him. I thought of another bit of food I'd like. This is. Um, do you remember that you probably not remember the James? Harriet books, mm. you know, the vet books. Mm. They shouldn't happen to a vet. Yes. You're too young for this, Laura, I think. But the, I remember vividly, he goes on a boat and he gets hors d'oeuvres and it's like pickled herring and stuff like that. And I was about 10 and I said to my mum, 
I want hors d'oeuvres. Can you can you just make me can you make me some hors d'oeuvres? And she was like, "What's for tea? Is it hors d'oeuvres?" And she was like, "What do you mean?" I was like, "I want hors d'oeuvres." James Harris had hors d'oeuvres, and I think she made me them. I think it was like sliced bits of pepper, some mackerel. I don't know why they were hors d'oeuvres, but it was a thing in this book that he had hot, kind of nice. So that's very, sophisticated, very sophisticated, sophisticated order. To have that for your team. Hang on, as Lucy told us, her, her ideal fantasy yeah. literary meal. Yeah, good point, Laura. <laughs> good point. Now, I, does it have to be fictional? Yeah, well, does it? Well, no. whatever's easier. Well, it's just that there is, a, there is a dinner that I would really, really, really like to have been yeah. at, which is in Paris in... Oh, of course. I the date. I think, it's, I think it's before the First World War. I think it was about 1912. And Picasso and loads of other artists are living in the Bateau Lavoir in sort of semi-squalor and they have a party for um, a painter called Rousseau who they called Le Douanier Rousseau who they kind of sort of semi-rediscovered. I can't remember why they had the party but there's a there's sort what of a of it. A customs person? Yeah, because he, he looked like a customs official rather than looking like a kind of exciting artist. I enjoyed the way you left that untranslated, by the way. It's very, I, very just assu- I just assumed very that everyone knew. Yeah, very chic of you. My GCSE French brain was just a douanier. Anyway, go on. Um, and there's an account of it. And in fact, I think what happened, they ordered in some food from a from a local um, place, which didn't turn up. And so they all just got hammered. because And some, somebody, I think Marie Laurencin made something, but basically the food didn't turn up, so they all got really hammered. But it was supposed to be this wonderful... And right. they all gave toasts to Douanier Rousseau. And it was kind of everybody who was cool in Paris at that point, which was, you know, almost the... Just everybody who was cool, full stop. Yeah. Um, so your your favorite, just to be absolutely clear, your favorite fictional meal you've gone for a real booze up which had no food. It would have had excellent food. The food they would have had sounded delicious. It doesn't think, work. I think we might call this out to, to the listeners. Do do because Theo will be back next week. Theories are, of course, our great gourmet. So anyone want to share with us? their favourite meals in literature that they wish to have eaten themselves. There's the picnic, which you've written about in Wind in the Willows, where mm. Ratty gradually speeds up and talks about crisps and... Oh, completely breathless. He just lists everything yeah. in the hamper which without... I- which I, oh, I, can still, I can still think of yeah. and I remember feeling hungry about. Uh, so people do tweet us, tweet at the TLS, at the TLS. Let us know which ones we're feeling. We'll try and give one to Lucy, who's managed to... Who's managed to not think of something which is not fictional and not food. Can I ask Laura one final thing? Yes. Can you please tell us what pond life sandwiches are? <laughs> I can indeed. Let me get this right. So um, pond life sandwiches, um, they are um, the Greek doctor's suggestion of, of what they, what you can eat because they're full of protein. Um, and uh, they are sort of little tiny plankton and shrimp and microorganisms oh. in the water. Um, very proteinous, very meaty. And you just slap them between two, two slices of bread and delicious. Wow. Delicious. You heard it here first. <laughs> delicious. Do we think delicious? I'm taking it on. I'm taking it on Jerry's um, I mean, advice. They'd be very damp, wouldn't they? <laughs> Maybe you could sort of sieve them and strain them through a muslin cloth or something. Um, Laura Freeman on that pond-based bombshell. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. To Russia then. The paper begins with the resurrection of a discarded ending to Camera Obscura by Nabokov, which has been transcribed and translated for the first time by Olga Voronina. I'm pleased to say that it still sparks the telltale tingle between the shoulder blades of true Nabokovian writing. In the more familiar version of the novel, translated into English as Laughter in the Dark, the blind fine art expert Bruno Kretschmar dies at the hand of his mistress. He sat on the floor with bowed head, then bent slowly forward and fell like a big soft doll to one side. In the newly discovered conclusion, dating from 1931, he gets to take violent revenge, shooting Magda at close range and then grimly palpating the corpse. Beneath his palms, all was wet and warm. Her smooth stomach breasts and especially her face were like some kind of porridge which is pretty grim. There's also the opportunity to discover or rediscover another Russian great this week. Rachel Polonsky has reviewed Vasily Grossman's reassembled Stalingrad, together with an account of his life and creative evolution. The novel, actually two novels welded together, covering a single year between 1942 and 1943, was designed to show the Soviet victory over German fascism. Plus, Amy Knight reviews two books which ask opposing questions. Is the West unjustifiably Russophobic, ascribing evils to a nation that is willfully misunderstood, or does Russia simply represent a grave threat to Western democracies, making it more than worthy of our sceptical ire? Well, to answer that and anything else Russian we can throw at her, we're joined by TLS Russian editor Rebecca Reich. Rebecca, hello. Hi, Stick. Uh, Firstly... I'm asking you this as well, Lucy. Are we all comfortable with how we're pronouncing the word Nabokov? I'm comfortable in that I'm totally ignorant, so yeah. I'm going to bow to Rebecca on that Rebecca, one. Rebecca, how, uh, how do you pronounce Nabokov? Um, I would say Nabokov, Nabokov. Um, but yeah. I don't mind how you pronounce it as long as people are reading it. Uh, so, <laughs> do you know, actually, if, well, there, in 1960, he was asked about it, Rebecca. Have you seen this interview he gave? No. And they said to him, how do you pronounce it? Um, and he did a very long Nabokovian answer. And he said, as to pronunciation, Frenchmen, of course, say Nabokov with the accent on the last syllable. Englishmen say Nabokov, accent on the first. And Italians say Nabokov, accent in the middle, as Russians also do, as you do, Rebecca. Mm-hmm. Nabokov, a heavy open O, as in Nikoboka. My New England ear is not offended by the long, elegant middle O of Nabokov as delivered in American academies. So there you go, you can pronounce how you like. But he also says Vladimir rhymes with Redeemer. 
So it's <laughs> Vladimir. 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 In the Russian pronunciation, Vladimir. Yeah. Vladimir. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, it sounds to me, more or less, Rebecca, that you are a true Nabokovian and he doesn't really care either way. Um, so let's talk about uh, Nabokov. What's the background to this, Rebecca? Where did this come from? How exciting is it? Well, I think it's very exciting. Um, it's, as you said, it's um, his first attempt at ending his novel, um, Camera Obscura, which he wrote in Russian originally in 1931 and then translated um, by himself as Laughter in the Dark um, seven years later. And people who know the book know that um, both versions, the Russian and the English version, end with the main character getting killed by his former lover. But um, what we've found out is that there was an earlier ending to the Russian version where things went quite differently for him. And um, Nabokov had him had the hero killing his lover instead of her killing him. And we know this because Olga Voronina, who's um, a Nabokov expert and uh, teaches Russian literature at Bard College, she dug up this ending in the Nabokov archives in the Library of Congress on nine holograph pages, and she transcribed it from the Russian and translated it um, for the first time. And so we're pretty excited to be able to publish that for the first time. Um, and what did you make of it as a, I mean, when I read it, it felt very Nabokovian. It felt like, like you knew what was going on. It felt like something that he would write. What did you think? Well, I think it's pretty um, significant. It's much more than um, just a curiosity piece. It's, um, it tells you a lot uh, about um, Nabokov's way of writing. And this is something that um, Voronina points out in her introduction where she, um, where she says that you can learn a lot about his narrative ethics from how he, um, what he did when he rewrote this ending. So in his later books, it's often a rule that murderers um, have no right to any kind of hope or redemption or even an afterlife. So here we actually can see uh, Nabokov making a choice to go down that kind of ethical path in action when he... Um, first makes his hero a killer, but then changes his mind and turns him into a victim so that he can actually um, get that kind of redemption that he's seeking. And even at the end of this one, although he shoots her, it sort of ends everything. I don't want to spoil this, but here, here is the ending. Everything was as before, dark, velvety dark, and someone's hands, many hands grabbed him from all sides. So although he uh, is the shooter, his fate isn't necessarily a good one either. No, no, it's not a happy ending either way. <laughs> but it, I did, do think it is signif it's very significant, that switch, isn't it? Because not I don't know the book, but he goes off with the um, his mistress when she's 16 and, and kind of runs off with her and dumps his wife. Is that right? Mm -hmm. That's right. And so um, for him then to also shoot her, <laughs> I mean, of course, you know, of course he could do that. He could do whatever he wanted. But it's a very interesting switch that actually he has her kill him. Yes. What do we make in the of, final version? Yeah. What yeah. do we make of the, the bit I quoted? The beneath his palms, always wet and warm, a smooth stomach, breast, and especially a face with like some kind of porridge. Um, that's deliberately distasteful, isn't it? In the way the way that's written. Well, it's this very sensual, I think, um, Nabokovian language, um, but it's also a kind of almost, you know, estrangement from the from her body. Um, you know, yeah. the body that he knows so well, but now he's, up, he's blind by this point. And so he's only feeling her. He's not able to see her. Um, 
So you actually get that kind of sense of touch that's really embedded into the into the writing, um, and and Nabokov is able to convey that so well. Uh, do you, have you read much of him in Russian, Rebecca? Is he? Is he? I've read some. I've read some of him in Russian. Is he an easy Russian read? I think he's an interesting Russian read um, to read alongside his English language self-translation. Yeah which he did a lot of. So he self-translated Laughter in the Dark. He self-translated his autobiography, Speak Memory. I love that um, book. Which I, which I also love. And, um, and, there's, and often he makes adjustments um, between the different versions um, that, you know, for different audiences, but also almost as if he feels the language differently um, in different languages. And so, you know, um, aspects of the words and, and the phrasing have to change too. And that doesn't happen that often. I'm trying to think of other examples of big literary figures who self-translate. Beckett does a bit, doesn't he? Beckett does, yeah. And and that's it's though quite, sometimes he, you know, he he let other people translate him, but he does do that, and it's really interesting when you to see what he does as well. Yeah, I can't think of that many other people who do it really. No, it's just interesting that that mid-century point these two great writers were doing. What, what's your favourite Nabokov? Is, is it Speak Memory? Speak Memory is one of them, but I actually really love his little novel, Pnin. Oh, yeah. Um, which is often overlooked, um, maybe because it's about a, a Russianist, <laughs> which I can <laughs> sympathize with. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a novel about a Russian emigre who teaches Russian at a small um, liberal arts college on the East Coast, um, much like the ones where he himself taught. Um, and he's this really wonderfully absent-minded professor character who's thoroughly displaced from everywhere, from his homeland, from the, his adopted country. And whenever I think of it, I always think of this scene where Pnin finds himself pressing the button of a water fountain for a particularly ungrateful squirrel who's sort of staring at him <laughs> contemptuously and greedily drinking up the water and then leaves without thanking him at all. And Pnin's, of course, weeping the whole while. And it's just one of those really Nabokovian scenes that somehow managed to be um, incredibly sympathetic to their character, to the character, and also completely cruel at the same time. Is it a, is it a metaphor for the academic experience as a teacher? <laughs> I, 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 I really We're all not. pressing <laughs> buttons for squirrels. <laughs> for squirrels okay. Ungrateful squirrels. I always thought that if, if I could go to, um, I didn't go to many lectures when I was at university, but if I could go to a lecture series at any time in the history of universities, going to his Cornell lecture series classes in the 50s, I thought would just be a mm. remarkable experience, and there's a collect. You, you can actually buy yeah, you his can lectures. Read them I've read them; yeah. they're, they're magnificent. But his exam questions. Oh, have so, you read those? Yeah, yeah, I've read some I've of his. Ex- seen those. So one of his questions, well, there's an actual question by Nabokov. Discuss Flaubert's use of the word "and." Oh, he was kidding, wasn't he? No, that's an actual. No, but I bet he was also kidding. Yeah. and saying, "Well, if you can do it, you know." But can you I'll imagine? You've got Nabokov as your, your, te- your teacher, and then you sit down to the exam <laughs> thing, and the first question is discuss Flaubert's <laughs> use of the word "and." You're not that tough an examiner, are you, Rebecca? I hope not. <laughs> no, no. Uh, we better move on because I could talk about Nabokov all, all, all day. Let's move on to uh, Vasily Grossman and the novel Stalingrad, which is a sort of Soviet war and peace. Uh, Rachel Polonsky explains. How significant is this novel? I hadn't heard a great deal about it, if I'm honest. How, how significant is the novel and, and is Grossman as a figure? Well, as a novel, it's really significant. Uh, first of all, as um, the first half of this massive epic that people usually only know the second half of, and that's Life and Fate, 
which people often describe as the Soviet War and Peace because it's, you know, a massive epic novel. It's um, philosophical. It's a historical novel that takes place during war. It focuses on families and the relationship between individuals and history. But actually, in Soviet times, it was Stalingrad. It was this first half of this um, two-part epic that was described that way. And the state was actually actively looking for a kind of Soviet um, Tolstoy who would be able to express the spirit of the times and you know put it into put it into a kind of the form of a novel so it's um, significant on its own terms as a novel but it's also really significant because of its publication history which is interesting in itself um, so he actually he began it during the war he was at Stal- he was at Stalingrad wasn't he he was at Stalingrad that's right and so he began writing it in 1943, I believe, while he was still at Stalingrad. And, um, and then it was um, serialized in the Soviet Union before Stalin's death. Um, so it was published before Stalin's death in 1952 and then republished um, over the course of the 1950s. But what happened to Life and Fate was quite different because in 1960, he um, finished Life and Fate and he submitted it and then it was rejected for publication. And then his apartment was famously raided and the manuscript was seized. Um, but he was able to um, uh, save a copy, um, which was then smuggled out well after his death in the 70s and published abroad. So these, these two halves had very different fates, and they also acquired really different reputations, one as a kind of very Soviet novel and one as an anti-Soviet novel. Um, and that made the anti-Soviet novel quite popular in the West. Yeah. Um, and, and gave him the reputation of a dissident writer. But Stalingrad is a much more kind of um, complicated situation because it's really a novel that does uh, praise um, the Soviet war effort, that praises um, Stalin, and that um, incorporates a lot of um, sort of uh, socialist realist style. So um, that's one reason I, um, that, that the translator, Robert Chandler, and uh, Elizabeth Chandler, that's one reason that Robert Chandler's thinks that it was not, um, uh, you know, translated until now and also um, given enough attention until now. And and it is extraordinary, that fate in the West, because basically, uh, you know, lots and lots of people have heard of life and fate. And as far as I know, no one's heard of Stalingrad. But in its, you can see that the anti-Soviet novel fitted the, you know, the way people were thinking in the West at that time. But the first one, it wasn't just pro-Soviet, was it? It was anti-Nazi. It was about the. It was about that war, that pivotal turning point in Stalingrad, and the extraordinary kind of, I don't know what the word is, the kind of extraordinary feat of the of the Russian soldiers holding the Nazis at bay. Yeah. And and you absolutely. wonder why the anti-Nazi novel wasn't popular. Um, the anti-Nazi novel, as in Stalingrad. Exactly. I mean, not as it being not just pro-Soviet, but you, you mean know, in the l- West. Look what we did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it just, um, it, it, it never made it to translation. Um, I think people just, the, the reputation that it had for being a sort of Stalin-era, you know, approved novel um, must have outweighed <laughs> any, other, um, any other aspects that might have made it, you know, sort of ideologically acceptable in the West. Mm. Um, well, it's interesting we're talking about the Western reception of Russian ideas, because that does take us to another piece in the paper. Amy Knight's reviewed two books, Elliot Bornstein's Plots Against Russia and Mark Smith's The Russia Anxiety. And effectively, they make two diametrically opposed cases about the West's relationship with Russia, don't they? Yeah, yeah. 
um, it's, it's kind of a review that looks at um, an issue from two opposite tacks by looking at these two uh, books that argue in different ways about um, essentially about kind of conspiracy theorizing and, um, and anxieties that Russia and the West have about each other. And Elliot Bornstein's contention, which seems to me as an occasional observer of Russian activity in the West to be hard to sustain, is effectively there is Russophobia and our um, view of how Russia conducts itself is conditioned by a sense of hostility on our part rather than hostility inherent in their own actions. Um, that's Mark Smith's contention. Yeah. Okay. Um, that so so he's arguing that it um, that it's that the West is, thinks in in, conspirial, in conspiratorial terms about um, Russia um, and it suffers from what he calls a Russia anxiety, but that's mainly because it doesn't understand um, Russia's history and and so he's arg- he argues that if you tell history in a different way that highlights the positive aspects of Russian history um, a little bit more than they usually are in the West, then you're going to um, realize that not all Russian leaders were that terrible, that they're, that, um, that uh, even in the drive to modernization and even during policies like collectivization or um, the creation of the gulag system, um, the Stalinist leadership believed that they were implementing socialism and so that there are different ways of telling history and that affects um, that affects uh, the, the narrative that comes out. Amy Knight, it has to be said, would sympathise more with the Bornstein position then, which is, which is not that. Yeah, she does sympathise more with that. And um, that position is that uh, he's looking at conspiratorial trends in Russian media and Russian film and fiction um, since the collapse of the Soviet Union um, that focus often on, uh, um, that focus on uh, conspiracy theories about the West so things like CIA plots against Russia, the idea of Ukraine being a puppet of the West, um, the idea that there is gay propaganda coming in from the West. And he argues that it's partly a function of geopolitics, but also an expression of something that's like deeply emotional about how Russians see themselves um, since uh, 1991. Um, and he even calls it libidinal, this kind of urge to, um, de- to define themselves in opposition to the West. It's funny how Russia in some ways is a sort of crucible of all these modern anxieties. I mean, even if you, whatever side of the argument you take, and it seems there seems to be a sensible one, but even if you take the opposite view, Russia becomes the sort of focus for all sorts of issues to do with conspiracy and demagoguery um, and undue influence online and how the truth can be reshaped, fake news. A lot of the things that are sort of slogans of the age tend to have a Russian angle at some point, don't they? Yeah, they do. And it's it, there's a long history to that. You know, Russia and the West have loomed pretty large in each other's imagination um, for, you know, since the 19th century, at least. Um, and we we remember, um, some of us remember the Cold War tensions in which that continued through the 20th century. And, and this review really looks at how these, um, this mutual sort of preoccupation and suspicion continues to the present day. Well, Russia looms large in the TLS uh, this week. Uh, Thanks to you entirely, uh, Rebecca. uh, There's there's all sorts of uh, uh, other Russian aspects, but those bits we've talked about there are the main ones. And the Nabokov really is such a joy, I I think, to have in the paper and to read. Um, So thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Dick. Do you have a favourite Nabokov? 
Lucy? Well, I'm afraid I was going to say speak memory as well. Oh, like Sorry, we're all saying speak memory. Can we say memory. Lolita? I'm allowed to say Lolita? You're allowed to. Do you find Lolita creepy? It's weird how my attitude has changed. I do now, yeah. When you were younger, was it all a bit racy and kind of... Yeah. But, I mean, I can see that his, you know, you're not you're not on his side. No. You, we are One supposed of, to think... The, great, um, the greatest <laughs> of all unreliable narrators yeah, he is, is exactly. Humble. Yeah, but he's so... The trouble is, he's so good... That's the genius. That's the, yeah, but that's, but that's the genius a problem. Of the book argument, isn't it, it is, but it's a, it's it's probably in a way that speak memory is straight is beautiful and intense yeah. and evocative. I've and, not read Lolita since having children, and particularly having girl children, and I wonder whether actually I'd even be able to read it now in the way that I read it when I was twenty two. I and, wonder because yeah. the things things do change. Cause you also forget that she dies. She's dead at the start of the book, isn't she? There's the framing device. Uh, mm. as well did you know that when Nabokov first submitted to a publisher he said we really like it thank you so much but can you rewrite it so the action takes place on a midwestern farm and it's about a rugged western farmer having gay sick sex with a young boy uh, oh. uh, full of and it's full of uh, deep philosophical musings like um God hates us. I guess we're all hated and things like that. And that's really? the, that's the letter he got back from a publisher. Wow. L- love, love, Lolita, Vladimir. Could you write a different um, book? But would you please? mind entirely rewriting it to make it a sort of midwestern, isolated farm wow. story? About- well, maybe that. Maybe they wanted to write that book. Yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe they thought. <laughs> How about America this? Wanted. I've had an idea. But, Gosh, uh, uh, Nabokov uh, decided not to, and mm-hmm. that's probably a good thing. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Rebecca Reich and Laura Freeman. Make sure you're subscribing to the TLS or we'll come and shout at you wherever you live in the world. We won't really do that, Lucy. Uh, Next week, one of my favourite editions and podcasts are recommendations for summer reads. Lucy, you'll Mm -hmm. be back. I will. Pretending to have read or to be looking for... No, genuinely looking forward to books. You don't have to pretend because it's all in the future. I never pretend anyway. It's all true. And Thea's going to be back as well. Until then, from Lucy and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.